Ezekiel chapter 5 and verses 1 to 17. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire one third in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one third and strike it, uh, strike around it with a sword and one third you shall scatter in the wind and I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are around you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, indeed I, even I, am against you, and will execute judgments in your midst, in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again, because of your abominations. Therefore fathers shall eat their sons in the midst, and sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgment among you, and all of you who remain, I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. One third of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. One shall fall by the sword all around you, and I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. Thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged, and they shall not know, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you, in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment 
to the nations that are all around you. When I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I the Lord have spoken. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine which shall be for destruction which I will send to destroy you. I will increase the famine upon you and cut off you a supply of bread. And so I will send against you famine and wild beasts and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. You want a question? I think we, you must ask is what on earth is all that about? <laughs> to be honest. And another question we can ask what on earth has it got to do with our subject of prophecy? And basically what has it got to do with me? What has it got to do with us? I suppose most, if not all of us, have lived all of our lives right up until now without encountering this passage of scripture and therefore surely, really, actually we can probably live all of our lives after it without having uh, looked at it anyway. It's such an obscure, strange passage of scripture that it has no bearing on who we are and what we've done. You know, and that all may be true and it is true you know, because there will be people. Have you ever read this story before, Dave? Yeah. You have? So he did, obviously. <laughs> have you, have you, Joel? No? Al? You through your reading, but have never had, an, never had an impact on you. You'd have gone over the head. Sandra, have you ever read about it before? No. So it's not something that we sort of, oh, I know, I know. I think I'll read Ezekiel 5 to go to bed tonight. <laughs> None of us. <laughs> <laughs> you're seeking for a bit of encouragement and, uh, but what we are doing on a Thursday night of course we are looking at the prophetic nature of the scriptures and I think this is one massive part of it you know you've got this huge sort of what I would call a prophetic ocean in the scriptures and this is one part of that <coughs> prophetic ocean that even though we've read it it's going to be exciting for us I'm convinced of it I'm convincing myself by the minute but then losing the will I think at the minute you know and as we go through it we will begin to make sense of what we've read and I think we'll all go from here actually amazed as to how God, great God actually is because this is absolutely amazing now we know that with God air is very very important and um, when you look at the Old Testament we can see that people could take a, a Nazarite vow for instance and uh, the Nazarite vow they would vow to God they would promise God that they would not uh, eat certain foods they would not drink certain drinks uh, they would not go to certain places they would not wear certain things and they wouldn't put a razor upon their heads and that would be the case for as long as they would make a vow so priests and men of the Old Testament they would uh, make vows to God not to cut their hair you know of course we have 
the perpetual Nazarite or the ideal perpetual Nazarite and his name is Samson and here God has uh, commanded his parents that Samson be a Nazarite all his life that he should never ever cut his hair you want to know that uh, as far as he was concerned his strength was in his hair of course it wasn't his strength was in God but it was represented for him in his hair and of course we have another perpetual um, Nazarite in Samson Samson also was a man who never had his hair cut you know Hannah when she promised uh, God that she would uh, give Samson back to him when she would bear him and wean him then she said I will not put a razor upon his head so you are two men who are dedicated to God their whole lives have been given over to God to his service, to his will, to his purpose and both of them have the same sort of uh, characteristic of not having their hair cut at all you know Isaiah chapter 7 we have this warning from God which uh, pertains to our story tonight it says uh, in the same day the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river with the king of Assyria he'll shave their head and the hair of their legs and will also remove the beard such a thing a shave in the head and the legs and the beard represents to God his judgment upon them because it brought with it shame and reproach to all those who would suffer such a thing even of course we are we can sort of remember or we are reminded of the humiliation of Jesus himself when as he was taking his journey to the cross of Calvary they took from him his beard they took from him his beard and they covered his hair with the thorns now we know to me that the thorns represent the judgment of God upon this world you know Adam never saw a thorn until he ate the fruit and then he couldn't get rid of them and Jesus placed those that um, characteristic of sin covered in his hair his beard ripped from his face in Isaiah chapter um, 50 and verse 6 it says I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard I did not hide my face from them from their shame and from the spitting what an horrible thought what a horrible sight what an abomination what a shame you know and that's what it means to shave off the head and the hair of the legs and also the beard you know in such drastic method, uh, measures that he is enforcing here in Ezekiel chapter 5 this is what's going to happen you can see what it means to God what it means to people it is a judgment of God it is a shame and a reproach upon people you know and read in verse 5 of our passage today thus 
Thus saith the Lord, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries around her. You know, it's obvious to see. I think I've... Uh, you know where I am up there? You are. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Set in the midst of the country, of the world. It's in the middle of the world. You know, it's obvious to see from that picture that God was concerned that the world should see who He is. He's concerned that the world should know who He is. And He's concerned that the world should know what He's like. Now, of course, we know that God chose Abraham and through him Israel in order to reveal himself to the world. In you, says God, in you and you a seed, will all the world be blessed. And this is the plan of God. God wasn't going to reveal himself to everybody at one time. He will do that in the end. Because everyone will see the glory of the Lord together. That's to come. But his plan, and even his plan today, is that he choose a group of people to exhibit the graces and the characteristics of God. You know, he chose Abraham from all the world. He chose him not because he was better than anyone else, but in his grace, he set his grace on him. He called him out of the earth of the Chaldees. And he gave him an understanding of God. Through the covenant, through the the, the law and through the sacrificial system. All this pointed to a God who is holy and a God who can't abide sin and a God who will shed his blood in order to relieve people from the judgment of their sin. That's the God that they wanted. He wanted them to show the people of the world. And so he put them in the most obvious place. And the most obvious place is Israel. Now when you look at the, um, the picture on the wall, you will see what is called the Fertile Crescent. You can see a, a green band that looks like a boomerang. It's a fertile crescent. It's known as the Fertile Crescent. And it goes from, the, from Egypt, which was fertile because of the Nile, through Israel, and all the way down into Mesopotamia, to Babylon, to Iraq, to Iran, right down to the Gulf. And all that was where people lived. And if you look at uh, Jerusalem, I've marked out Jerusalem on the map, it is in exactly the centre of the two main, um, what's the word I'm looking for, the main uh, places where people lived. Egypt was the, the centre of, of life, and Babylon was the center of life. And if anyone wanted to go from Egypt to Babylon, they would have to pass through Jerusalem. And if anyone went from Babylon to Egypt, they would have to pass through Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was the crossroads of the world. And I suppose it's true to say that it's the crossroads of the world now. Everybody at one point in a day will see the map of, Jer of Jerusalem on the television. If you were looking at the television or you're looking at Facebook or whatever, you will see Israel somewhere through that day. Because it is the most strategic, the most important part of the world. 
And God has not made a mistake in choosing that little tiny track of land to put his people in. Because everyone's eyes are on that part of the world. Whoever you are, you cannot escape Israel. You cannot escape Jerusalem. It was located in what is called the Fertile Crescent. And that's what he says in verse 5 of this chapter. I have set you in the midst. I have, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and all the countries all around her. So what is Israel? It is the perfect shop window for God. Now if you want to put yourself out there, you put yourself in the most prominent place. You don't hide under a rock if you want people to see you. And what has he done? He's put Israel, his nation, in the most prominent place. You know, and um, her lifestyle, her religion, her morality, her justice, her love, would all point to the God that she served. And now, of course, that is our responsibility. The Lord has done exactly the same for us. He's put us in the most prominent place. You know, and I suppose the same can be said of Israel as can be said about the church. You know, it's the eyes of the world are on the church. Not, perhaps they are not looking to see how wonderful we are. They are trying to find flaws. They are trying to find reasons to stay away. They are trying to solve their conscience in not wanting to go. So they talk to her about us as being hypocrites and, and uh, money grabbers and all that. So it gives them a, a reason not to go, but they've got to look. You know, when you and I, when we come out of our homes and we go to church, we are being observed every day. You know, when we're in work, we've been observed. People are looking at us to see how we will react to this circumstance or that circumstance. They're listening to what we have to say in order that they can get et up about God. How dare you say that about God? But what are they doing? They're looking. They're listening. You know, and the world is looking at Jerusalem. And the world is looking at the church. It's our responsibility you know and the, the question is what picture of God are they seeing when they look at us what picture of God are they seeing when they look at you in your workplace when they look at you in your family when they look at you when you're out enjoying yourself what picture of God are they seeing because that's what's happening here God has placed them at the center of the world so that they can paint a picture of the God that they serve in. Because it's only through them and it's only through us that He becomes visible. And as they scrutinize us, they scrutinize Him. What a responsibility that is, that is placed upon our shoulders. Now then we come back to Israel. When we think about that, as far as we are concerned, we come back to Israel. And we see that she failed in so many ways. Verses 6 to 8 of our reading tonight. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness. And look at the words in black. More than, more than the nations 
and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and they have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, says the Lord, God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, not even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, indeed I, even I am against you, and will execute judgments in your midst and in the sight of the nations. And what a dreadful indictment upon the covenant people of God. They slide lower than the worst of the worst. You know, God used these people to destroy nations who were immoral, idolatrous, and violent. And yet His nation has slidden lower even than them. They should have been a witness, and yet they become a reproach and God's reputation is dragged in the mire because of them you know wouldn't that be awful for that to happen in Astra today that his reputation will be dragged in the mire because of us and I pray that as we live our lives in the church outside the church in our homes in our workplaces that we would paint such a um, a true genuine painting picture of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ that people won't uh, his reputation won't be destroyed because of us but enhanced because of us that people will be drawn to him because of us that they will see in us something that they really want and they really long for. And they will come and find out. You know, and that's what happens. When we are living in the light of God's grace. You know God always warns people. When judgment is pending. It's never a spur of the moment thing. Remember the flood. You know he gave those people over a hundred years to put themselves right. He told Noah. That he, was going to be, that he was going to flood the world and he had to build an ark and he took him a hundred and odd years to build the ark you know and it tells, tells us in, uh, in the New Testament that Noah was a preacher of righteousness and not only did he build the ark did he preach with his hands he preached with his mouth and told these people what was coming judgment you know there's a judgment to come and there's been such a long time in between for people to make sure that they're in the right place before they ever get there. You know, he's given, um, he's put his ambassadors into the world to warn them of the wrath that is to come. Your know, judgment is never a spur of the moment thing with God. There's always this moment when he gives people an opportunity to change, to repent. He's always gracious. In his giving. What is um, it says in 1 John or 1 Peter or 2 Peter? God is patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but that all to come to repentance. And you, in this passage that we are looking at, he gives Israel a visual aid of what he's about to do if they don't repent. And it's a visual aid that will last. Right up until the 20th century. Isn't that amazing? 
know, he's going back here, 2,800 or so years, or 2,700 years. And only last century, this prophecy has been completely fulfilled. I find that quite exciting, quite impressive. You know, it's the strangest picture that you could ever imagine. But it's soon going to make sense to us. Ezekiel. Now, if you think God has asked you to do some strange things, pity poor Ezekiel. Because this is one of the strangest, but there are some even more strange things that Ezekiel has to do. This is strange all of its own. Spare a thought for this man. You know, first, he had to shave his head. That's the first thing he had to do. He had to shave it with a sword. Which I find would be, I think, is quite difficult. <laughs> he had to shave his head. There he is. I've got him uh, a little picture of him shaving his head with a sword. Until he is completely bald. Now that must have been a spectacle in itself because God didn't say go to the bathroom. That wouldn't have been so bad. Go to the bathroom and shave your hair. No, he said go out into the midst of the city and shave your hair in front of everybody. So there he is. The prophet. This man who is so high profile. He speaks out the, the wonderful oracles of God and what is he doing? He's shaving his hair until he's bald. That's a spectacle. For the nation to sit up and take notice. The prophet, he's shaving his hair. That's totally humiliating for him. But Ezekiel is obedient. And allows himself to be the object of scorn. Next, he weighs his hair. In a weighing scale. That's the next thing he has to do. And then last of all, he cuts it up or he separates it into three equal parts three equal parts so here we are we got a bald man sitting down and in front of him are three locks of hair both or the third three of them are the same size now then what is he going to do well first of all the first one he has to burn to burn I want to you, you know you, you know yourself when you singe your hair it's an horrible smell isn't it? it's a pungent smell you know sometimes you don't even know your hair's on fire until you can smell it that have happened to me you know you used to go and you're lighting the fire or lighting a candle and all of a sudden your hair's on fire you don't know and then the smell comes and you sh- immediately you go to your hair and try and brush it off it's a terrible stink that would have caused but what's worse is the message that accompanied such a strange action. Ezekiel speaks, he says, Therefore, as I live, says the Lord, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will diminish you. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. One third of you shall die of famine. One third of you shall die of famine. I don't know if you noticed that um, in the reading I said, it says after the siege is passed. You know, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege on Jerusalem and many people died 
In fact, a third of the people died because of the siege of Nebuchadnezzar. If you want to read that, you go to 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25. It's all about the siege of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, when even then, even after that, after being humiliated by Nebuchadnezzar, the nation still continued in its sin. Still cast a, uh, a scorning look to God and says, What more can you do against us? So Ezekiel takes the second, third. You know, and he starts to cut it up into little pieces. You know, like a chef would cut up the, the herbs to put in the stew. Here he is cutting up the little pieces of air and it, till it becomes totally useless for anything it's cut up only little bits remain you know he's is he going mad or what no he's not going mad but he's showing the fate of the nation and that is Nebuchadnezzar then will come and slay a third of the nation with the sword you know this is devastating this is devastating. And a third shall fall by the sword around you. Remember that verse I read earlier that about the razor? A hired razor. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He's come in to shorn or to shear the hair of Jerusalem. So the way that God is saying it. It's a, a horrible, horrible thing to look at. You know, and then there's one third left. And this is the strangest of all. You know, and um, stick with me, this is God's word. I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. You know, and the picture I got in my mind is Ezekiel getting the hair, throwing it up into the wind, and getting his sword and sword fencing it like that, until it all blows away. You know, and this is the worst of all. You know, this. You know, you think to yourself, this isn't, this isn't fair, Lord. You know, this seems a little harsh. Was there any warnings about all this ministry and min misery? And you've got to say, yes, there was. You know, when you look at the, the warnings that God has given, it's exactly what he said it would happen. You know, Ezekiel chapter 5 is but a praise a, a, a short summary of Leviticus, uh, Leviticus chapter 26. See, when we think about God, sometimes we play with God. But He's not there to be played with. He's very serious in what He does and what He says. He's still holy. He's still righteous. He's still far above us. And we'll be tied when we presume on God. And we still got to come before Him in reverence and fear. Yes, boldly before the throne of grace, but can, but can we come anyhow? No, of course we can't. Can we do anything? Of course we can't. There are consequences to everything we do. You and um, Leviticus chapter 26, you read it, it is a catalogue of horror. And this is what will happen. You know, and this is how we sort of summarise it in, a, in the chapter which we are looking at. He says, moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by notice that 
He does it in the sight. They become an example. Doesn't Paul tell us in Corinthians that what went the, his, the Israelites went through in the Old Testament are but examples for us to learn from. We learn from this in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you when I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken it. When I send against you the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you. I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. He's not to be toyed with. He is holy. He is righteous. And we've always got to remember that. Yes, we live in grace. And thank God for that. Thank God for that. So one third is burnt up signifying terrible drought and pestilence that came upon them. The next third was cut up into tiny little pieces signifying Nebuchadnezzar's terrible massacre of the Jews when he broke into their city. And the last third was, thro- uh, was thrown into the wind signifying the terrible exile that the Jewish nation has endured ever since see as I'm saying it's this prophecy reached right up until 1948 when God completed that judgment on his people 1948 from 700 BC that's one heck of a, a, a judgment upon people but wait <laughs> wait that's not everything that's not everything thank God for verse 3 did any of you notice in verse 3 an oasis in the desert listen to what it says you shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in fire for there shall be a fire which will go out of the house of Israel a small number now this is a little group from the last third the third that were sent into exile God says I want you to pick up a few strands I want you to save a few strands And I want you to hide them in the hem of your garment. A small number. You know, there's always a remnant with God. There's always a remnant with God. There's always a small group of His people that will be preserved. And look where He's hiding them. He's hiding them in the hem of of his garment what a wonderful lovely place to find yourself in the hem of his garment or at the feet of Jesus himself you know when I read that little part oh, I was so thrilled you know this is the place where a woman felt the healing power of God flowing through her veins this is the place 
where men sat and listened to awesome words that fell from the mouth of Christ. Never men spake, never man spake like this man. Where were they? They were at the feet of Jesus. That's where you learned. You know, no one... Uh, it's where some fell and worshipped. Remember on resurrection morning when they were running away from the tomb to tell the disciples. You know, and this is what it says. It says, and as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. There's a small little group of people and they've been hidden in Christ. Hidden in God. Hidden in the hem of his garment. Now, who were they then? Who were they? These people, obviously they were in Babylon. Who were they? Well, of course, there's Daniel. He was one. He was one that was in the hem of the garment of God. And of course, the three Hebrew children. You know, even in the lion's den, he was in the hem of the garment of God. In the burning fiery furnace, they were in the hem of the garment of God. There was Nehemiah and Ezra. They were there in Babylon. And they were hidden in the hem of the garment of God. And of course these two were kept so safe that they were able to return with a small band of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. But there was someone more special than Daniel. And there was someone more special than them three boys. Someone more special than Nehemiah and Ezra. Someone that needed to be protected by all accounts. Someone that was so precious to God that he even came down and looked after them himself. Someone. His name is probably unfamiliar to us. Perhaps we've heard of him, perhaps we haven't. But his name is Shealtiel. And he had a son. And his son was named Zerubbabel. These two, God saw as the most precious possession that ever went into exile in Babylon. You know, and it's obvious why when you understand who they are. You know, and we understand who they are. Now to us, they are two names in a book and we on a screen. And I suppose that some of us who know our Bible will say, well, Zerubbabel is the one who sort of built the temple. But he's more than that. He's more than that. Who, the, who is Shealtiel? Never heard of him before. But he's so important. He's so precious. He's worth his weight in gold, this man is. You know, we've just gone through the Christmas story. And I don't know if you, you read Matthew chapter 1. I pro you probably didn't. It's the one we avoid like the plague. Matthew chapter 1. But listen to what it says. Jeconiah begot Shealtiel. And Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel begot Abihud Abihud Eliakim Eliakim Ezar Ezar Zadok 
Zadok, Achim, Achim, Eliud, Eliud, Eliezer, Eliezer, Mathen, Mathen, Jacob, Jacob, Joseph, Joseph, Jesus. The seed was in Babylon. The lineage of Christ was in Babylon. Where in Babylon? In the hem of God's garment. Kept safe and sound from all the problems and the difficulties that were found there. They had to be preserved. He had to preserve these two people at least. There has to be a remnant and they have to return to, from exile and they have to re-inhabit Israel and they have to rebuild the temple. Why? Because there's a small matter of the birth of Christ to consider. Now, one of the most enigmatic books of the Old Testament is the book of Esther. God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Where is God in the book of Esther? Remember when Haman committed himself to destroy the whole of the Israelite race. You know, he's a fool. And there's been many fools since. And there are quite a number of fools on the earth even today. You know, we are having uh, on our television screens, Iran are committing themselves to destroy Israel. And I think to myself, how foolish you are. Haven't you learnt that they who bless Israel will be blessed of God and they who curse Israel will be cursed of God. And Haman hung on his own gallows. And when you look at history, everyone that has arrayed itself against Israel has hung on its own gallows. You know, and the last one to do it, of course, is Hitler, who hung on his own gallows. Fools! Fools! But here is the first time that a man has committed himself to destroy the whole of the Israel, Israeli race. But where were they? Where was God in all that? Where was God? His name isn't even mentioned. But don't think where is God. Think where are the people? The people are in the hem of God's garment. You know, and he used, and I said this before Christmas, he used a beauty pageant in order to save his people from the evil that was there. God kept them in the hem of his garment. But, uh, uh-oh. That verse, unfortunately, goes on. I read it in the beginning. It didn't mean to, but I read it. It says, take some of them and throw them into the midst of the... Some of what? Some of these ones that had been kept in, ba- in Babylon. Some of these important people. Take some of them and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there the fire will go out into all the house of Israel. Now we know from history that this is after Christ's birth. This is after the rejection that he felt when he came to his own and his own received him not. This is after they crucified him. This is after he died and rose again and went back to heaven. This was AD 70. Jesus himself prophesied that this would take place. See this building? 
see this temple see these blocks that you are in so much in awe of not one will lay on top of another everything will be destroyed and the nation will be sent hurtling into exile this is, this is what happened in AD 70 when the Titus came from Rome and destroyed the temple and destroyed the city ruining and destroying the Jews and sending them off to join their brothers because their brothers had already gone out into the world they had already been dispersed into all the world and now even the select few that had been brought back from Babylon to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city and make sure that there was a place for Christ to be born rejection, rejected him, crucified him and paid the price in following how devious is the heart of man how easily we forget his grace and his mercy and his love and his protection how easily we turn away from him and again we suffer the consequences of what's going on. Never again to see their homeland gone into the world. Gone for good. Along with all the other nations that we read of in the scriptures. The Hittites, the Amalekites, the Midianites, the Ammonites. Where are they? They're gone. You can't find them anymore. And who's ever heard of Israel? Who's ever heard of the Jews? They're long gone. They've forgotten. But for grace. Can you get over God's grace? Because I can't. I can't get over it for them. And I definitely can't get over it for me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Ezekiel 5. That's what we read tonight. And wouldn't it be awful if there was only five chapters in Ezekiel? But fortunately, there's more than five. There's 40 odd. But we're only going to look at one more. And it's verse chapter 11. And I'm going to read verse 16 to you. And the cup 16 and 17. Therefore says the Lord. Therefore say. Thus saith the Lord. Although I have cast you out. Afar off among the Gentiles. And although I have scattered them among the countries. Yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone therefore say thus saith the Lord God I will gather you from the peoples assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel notice that fabulous phrase I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Hittites, Amorites, Amalekites, Midianites, Gurgesites, they've gone. They've been scattered. No one knows who they are, where they are, what they're doing right now. No one knows. Because no one knows if they're a Gurgesite or a Hittite. But Jews, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They've been a part of history ever since this moment. And they've been a part not of Jewish history or uh, Israel history, but they've been a part of world history. And wherever you go in the world, there's a Jew. And wherever you go in the world, there's a synagogue. 
And wherever you go in the world, there's a little sanctuary that God encloses his people in, enclaves his people in, and saves them from being absorbed into the greater community. You will always find a Jewish enclave wherever you go. Why? Because they gather around the Torah and they gather themselves in synagogues and they immerse themselves in their culture and they don't in any way proselyte anyone else. You see us as Christians, they, they can't understand us because we are out to get as many people to believe in Christ as we can. The Jews, they don't want to evangelize. They just keep themselves to themselves. And because of that, they are the only nation of antiquity that we can find in the world today. Why? Because they've got a little sanctuary in every nation in the world. And that sanctuary is God. Let me tell you this. It's the miracle of miracles that the Jews are still discernible. The synagogue, of course, was a masterstroke of Judaism. You are now to top it all. They are back in the land that they were chased out of, just like God said. You know, tonight started our Bible study tonight, started as a total absurdity. You know, as um, we saw a man doing such stupid things with his air. But now that absurdity has turned into one of the greatest wonders of history and the greatest glories of grace. Do the Jews deserve it? Of course they don't. Do Christians deserve it? Of course we don't. This is all down to the glory of grace. You know, if you was to read the whole book of Ezekiel, which we've only looked, you know, we've only sort of scratch the surface of really Ezekiel talks of the sinfulness of Israel so badly did they turn from God that there's a chapter chapter 10 that gives us a view of God's glory leaving the city it goes from the altar to the room to the temple to the city and it goes over the mountain to the Mount of Olives. You reminded me, um, me and Roger was talking earlier about Zulus, the Zulus and rocks drift and that. And if you remember the film, I, uh, if, if you've seen the film, when the, 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 the Welsh fusiliers beat, the, beat them, they walk back and you see them disappearing slowly and they over the mountain and they wave their shields and oomph and oomph and all that stuff. And then they go... And that's a picture of the glory of God. Leaving the sanctuary, moving over to the Mount of Olives and disappearing. That's in chapter 10. That's what all this is about. But when we get to chapter 43, when we read the whole book, that same glory returns. Remember, this, remember the question... Can these bones live? 
And remember the water that flows out of the temple? And everywhere it touched, it brought life. Well, just to finish, I'm going to read a few verses from verse 39. Chapter 39 and verses 21 to 26. And then if someone has got a hymn that we can finish our uh, Bible study off. This is what it says. I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hands of their enemies and they all fell by the sword according to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions. I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob. Now I will have mercy on the house of Israel. Now I will be jealous for my holy name. After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they are unfaithful to me, then they dwelt safely in their own land and no one will make them afraid. We are witnessing the last part of that prophecy even today do you know you've got um, nations upon nations that are arraying itself themselves against Israel and when you look at Israel do you know it shows no sense of fear at all no sense of fear at all there is no trembling you know, and even though they depend a whole lot on America, when America lets them down, which they have done in past years, you don't see some quake of fear coming over the Israelites. Because they've got somebody better and bigger than America and looks after them. In fact, I would say that America should be glad that they, Israel are on their side. Because these prophecies are absolutely incredible. And you and I have the privilege of seeing them unfold before our very eyes. I don't know what you think of the Bible study tonight. I, <laughs> I know what I think. That's the most important thing, I suppose. I know what I think. I am amazed at God and about His foreknowledge, His understanding. The way that he gets things done, his sovereignty and everything. You know, and, they, and if he can get all this sorted out, how much more can he get me sorted out? And he got his finger on my button. You know, and I'm destined to meet with him in eternity. You know, and if he can organize this and orchestrate this, then he can definitely orchestrate that. Because Christ is on the throne.